Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit in the room. The women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. What the fuck? Exactly. I have to confess, this was not my first reading or even second reading of this poem. I, I think I read it in the fall for the first time, reading more poetry, writing more really shitty poetry. I happened upon this one and I clicked play. And by the end, I was just like, what? I feel like you have to have this moment, no matter how educated you are, you have to just consider, like, what just happened? I think it speaks to, like, the thing with an agony is now you have to read it multiple times to get something out of it. There are people who say that if you have to read it the second time, if you have to listen to it the second time, if you have to look at it the second time, that's the proof. Oh, look how deep it is. But it could also be a trick. Look at me being really obscure for no good reason. The thing about literature is that like, even when you think you're an expert, you're really not because it's all about just ways that people can read a thing, right? Yeah, you're not. And no one is. Yeah. We're all learning. Sometimes comforting that way. But I'm reading some of the criticism of Proof Rock and I really liked one that I was looking at. And it was actually one of the earlier ones, Elizabeth Drew writing in 1949. It's a whole monograph on Eliot published by Scribner, which is kind of wild to think about how in the 40s, like Scribner is not only publishing great modernists, but like straight up monographs. The old school, look at me, I'm an important book paperback that you might remember. (laughs) (laughs) They always use that gray wood grain. You know, they did like A Farewell to Arms and all the other classics from that period. The big swinging dicks were all like that. So here's Elizabeth Drew writing on (laughs) T.S. Eliot and she just straight up slags proof rock. Like, yeah, all these people who are trying to interpret it for the past 40 years or so basically are trying to make coherent something that is by definition fragmentary and nonsensical and not that she thinks it's a bad poem. I mean, obviously she's a fan of T.S. Eliot. She wrote a whole monograph, but her point is that to really understand it, you have to understand how you kind of can't understand it. And that's part of the point. It's these different fragments. You piece it together and nobody can claim to say, well, this is the thing. Because this is the meaning. Because yeah. part of what Eliot is doing is he's showing you how poetry can do non-meaning, how poetry can do not speaking. The idea that it's of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock it is not a love song, and we don't really get any sense of who the character of J. Alfred Prufrock is. I mean, perhaps we do, but if we do, it is through an act of piecing the puzzle together. So that means that there's going to be a lot of like us in it a lot of where we put the pieces. And I kind of like this take because it sure seems real to me. I mean, one thing that I like to do when I teach poetry is instead of being like, well, what does this mean? Or like, what do you get out of this? I say, what's weird about this? That lets you know what to look at. Like, what are the important parts? What, what doesn't make sense? It also allows you to recognize the poem doesn't need to be perfect. The cracks are in some ways the most interesting parts, the things that don't fit. If I asked you, for instance, 
to describe J. Alfred Prufrock? What is what is the, this character? Who is J. Alfred Prufrock? What are his qualities as a person? What do we know about him? From my initial readings, he's fractured. He's worried about age. He's getting older like everybody. Right? Yeah. Right. There will come a well, time. There will be a time. Like, he's all about time. Yeah. Isolation and the passing of time. Pretty much everyone who reads this says part of the meaning is about age. Part of the meaning is about growing old. Part of the meaning is about regretting what you didn't do. That seems pretty clear to pretty much everyone who looks at this closely. Where we fill in the details, then, yeah, we might get different sort of contours to the character. We might have different ideas about, well, what is this you and I? What is this we? What is this us? Where are they going? What is the visit? For me, what makes this a poem of 1910 rather than a poem of 1915 is that this is a poem about boredom. This is a poem about tedium. And while it is also a poem about horror and a poem about regret, it's fundamentally about inaction. So where it is obsessed with time, where it is obsessed with growing old, it is obsessed also with not having done or said the thing that one should have done or said. After reading it, I wrote down that um, we are mere spectators in a constructed reality. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we never do the thing. People can argue for literally a hundred years about, well, what was the thing? What did he want to do? What did he want to say? And it almost doesn't matter. You, you can kind of fill it in however you want to fill it in. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, that's the beauty of the poem. That's where Eliot, I think, gets away with his, like it should be abstracted from any of the specifics of the time. And that's also where publishing this five years later in the midst of a cataclysmic war still kind of works, even though the poem is all about boredom and inaction. I also wrote down, we'll die anyway, so is anything worth it? (laughs) (laughs) The the stupidest reading, and please don't think that stupid is an insult coming from me because I love a good stupid reading. Like the stupidest reading is you could die on the Western Front, or you can die in bed, eating a peach with your trousers rolled up, having not confessed your love to the woman that you'd been talking to every day for the past 50 years. And either way, you're fucking dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you say stupid, but it's just true, you know? Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe the simplest things are just like, well, yeah. Well, the truth is stupid. Like, it's stupid that, like, some dude is torn up about whether he should say something while he's drinking tea with so-and-so and such-and-such. It's equally stupid that some other dude, say, at the same moment, is trying to decide whether he should change his socks now or tomorrow and both decisions are wrong because his feet start rotting and he dies from a fever two weeks later. For those of you who aren't right. following, that was a trench foot story. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, and, 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 and Rachel knows, but you know. <laughs> You 
can see how kind of backwards looking Poetry Magazine is in 1915, just based on the fonts. Pound had to do a lot of work writing to Monroe to be like, this is the new hot shit. You got to get on the, this train. Like this dude Elliot is brilliant. You might not get it now, but I swear if you don't publish it now, you're going to regret it. Sort of helping teach her how to read this new style of poetry, looking through the table of contents of June 1915 Poetry Magazine. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is the very last poem, and then it runs right before Rupert Brooks' obituary, which I have made a lot of hay with. Elizabeth Drew's comment is just that maybe Harriet Monroe wasn't super confident about publishing this poem, so she like put it in the back of the issue. But I think it's really fascinating that you read this poem, which is like, here's the new hot shit. And then the very next thing is Rupert Brooke is dead. And how did he die? He did not die in the interesting way that he imagined, right? So Rupert Brooke, famous for writing this poem, The Soldier in 1914, where he's literally fantasizing about dying on the field of battle in France. Talking about, talking about going up to an English heaven. He calls it an English heaven. It's like the most idiotically nationalist shit yeah. ever. <laughs> Only an Anglican could imagine a literally English heaven. It's right and fitting. But he doesn't... Would he you doesn't... bloody shut up? No, never. You're a Wanker, <laughs> shut up. He doesn't die in France. He doesn't go into the ground. We don't get to claim like a little square of France that's forever England and intended to by, you know. Didn't we talk about this? Oh, I talk about this constantly, but we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I've gotten conflicting reports. I guess I had read the obituary that if you want to call it an obituary, the comment that Harriet Monroe herself writes in this issue of Poetry Magazine, and I had credulously taken it for the truth that Rupert Brooke had died of heat stroke on his way to Gallipoli. I've heard another story that he died on a hospital ship, which I guess is not really all that different. The point is that he didn't die in France. He wasn't buried in the French ground. He didn't claim any section of France for England. He didn't die in battle. Those are the really yeah. important points. The details, whatever. The point is that like the the dude who imagined the good way to die last year is dead for no reason in a stupid, stupid way. And instead we get T.S. Eliot writing the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock about fantasizing about, well, what if I were a crab? Heroism is dead if it ever lived. Uh, let's talk about sunsets. Oh. Okay. Can you believe that in the fifth episode, this is the fifth episode, I've not yet talked about sunsets. I'm 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 surprised. It's been mentioned pretty much every meeting before this podcast. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Some of these critics, the smartest things they say are also the stupid things. The smartest thing to say is, no, a sunrise is not like a patient etherized upon a table. Ah, <laughs> oh, you get it. You get it. Yeah, oh, that's really? Metaphor. Yeah. I think that the person who says that kind of thing is like coming at a modernist poem from a fundamentally not modernist perspective, which is to say that the whole joke of the line is like, no shit. He does it later in the same stanza, streets that follow like a tedious argument. It's a... 
hilarious line streets that follow like a tedious <laughs> argument <laughs> i'm so sick of walking around this fucking town quit talking to me <laughs> it's brilliant because it's stupid and it's brilliant because the way i see it at least he's suckering in that reader to be like oh yeah here we got a nice little sing song going here oh we're at the tail end of poetry magazine uh, 1915 we got some nice uh, dante in the epigraph here let us go then you and i when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table <laughs> Oh my God. And I know you. I know you talked about. You mentioned that in the first draft of your um, beginnings of modernism. Yeah. I'd say yeah. Somebody somewhere, and I have not for the life of me been able to track this person down. I swear I saw this. I don't know where. And I've been going around like asking, who is it? I'm sure I read it somewhere that somebody claims that like this third line is literally the beginning of modernism. The patient etherized upon the table, and of course. I'm in love with it because it is sunset and debilitating gas, two of the most important symbols of the First World War. In uh, even the kind of like iconic memory of the Great War that we get in like say Fussell's book, which is like staring at the sunset, not thinking about how beautiful it is, but thinking like, oh, I hope nothing bad happens. I hope they don't attack. And then also this idea of uh, medical science can knock you out medical science can cure you or it could just be a friend of the podcast fritz haber sending over a big gas of chlorine to uh, choke you the beginning of the end basically yeah yeah and it's a poem about death in one way or another yeah and this is like literally a prelude to a whole era in literary criticism where you have people making comments like well all literature is about love and death which has passed into the vernacular is something that everybody knows now. It is the beginning of the end. Whether we want to say it's like the beginning of the end of civilization, the beginning of the end of this particular character in this particular poem. And it's almost accidental because like I said, Eliot writes this in 1910, publishes it five years later during the First World War. So all kinds of symbols now mean something different when like initially it was just about boredom and angst and I'm wandering through this dirty city now it's ominous in a different way for some people who are reading this. They have to read it up against the war. It's almost impossible not to. Well, and yeah, 1915. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That yellow fog, that yellow smoke. Yeah. Right? So in the third stanza now, Eliot is doing what we could call just a typical romantic anti-city. Here's London. But it's much more ominous because we have that first gas attack, April 22nd, 1915, and this is June. So it's hard not to think of the yellow fog, the yellow smoke as, we know it's not literally supposed to be poison gas, of course, but it necessarily within historical context must, in the mind of someone who's reading this, take on some of that inevitably. I mean, you'd think... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, and I think that that's a legit way to read the poem. I think that there are many different ways to historicize a poem. We can think of Eliot writing this in 1910 and what he's thinking about, that sort of boredom and played outness that we think of when we think of what the futurists are rebelling against, what the imagists and the vorticists, what those sort of pre-war modernists are doing who end up trying to adopt Eliot, though Eliot never really quite plays ball with them, though he does do certain things that are imagistic, if you will. 
but it also means something if we think about it being published during the war so we can historicize it that way and then we can go on to historicize the way that people go on to read and not all those things can exist together we don't have to fight one versus the other when people are writing dissertations and monographs and stuff like that part of the point of that is to fight that out because well that's how jerks like me get their jollies you know for folks like us, just like reading it and trying to figure it out and get some meaning from it, we don't have to select one meaning and say that it's better than any other. This has been uh, lamented, for instance, when we get to um, The Hollow Men, the other Eliot poem that I really like. And The Hollow Men famously ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. People have lamented, and I think maybe even Eliot himself lamented that, well, when he wrote that in the interwar period, that meant one thing. After the atomic bomb, it sort of automatically meant something different, whether you wanted it to or not. It leads you to inevitably misread the poem. But to my taste, it's like, well, you know, welcome to history. It goes in all directions, I guess. I don't know. That's, that's I guess, me being a postmodernist. A normal person would say, no, history goes in one direction, not in all directions, mm. you doofus. <laughs> Why the fuck Michelangelo? Please give me a clue. Anna, Rachel, somebody. Well, I want to say the same thing. <laughs> I only ask you the hard questions. To me, it doesn't add anything. Then again, people are going to be like, well, there's meaning behind that. And I'm sure that there is. Yeah, but... the traditional approach is T.S. Eliot is fucking genius. Everything is perfect. So how dare you question it? It must have meaning. Figure it out. <laughs> no, we know he's a dick, right? He's a human. I can go on my psychology bender. Let's put it another way. Is this a misogynistic poem? If he's a dick, and if he's talking about right. women. Uh, right. I mean, it could be or it could not be. It's a refrain, right? I think we only get it twice. And I read that first section up to the first use of it. And I'll just read the next section. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys slipped by the terrace made a sudden leap and seeing that it was a soft october night curled once about the house and fell asleep and indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street rubbing its back upon the window panes there will be time there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet there will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. When he gets to the point, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo, that makes me think of the creation of Adam. There will be time to create, but does it even matter if everyone meets the same stupid fate anyway? Is he 
fucking with you with these rhymes? Like, is he serious about these rhymes? Or is he, like, joking about rhymes? I don't know. I mean, does it sound like the way that one of the greatest American poets rhymes things? It seems naive in some degree to me. One thing I think is really important about this poem and that I always try to stress is that I think that it has to be understood as, in many ways, quite silly. If you take it too seriously, you miss it. Think of how many times he repeats himself, even in just these opening stanzas, circling back around to the same words over and over and over. He lands on this refrain stanza twice. And and like I said, it sounds like an advertising jingle or something. Mm -hmm. He's not saying anything about Michelangelo, an elusive method like this reference to Dante in the beginning, of course, written in Italian because, duh, obviously you speak Italian because you're not one of those idiot proles. If you're doing it well, if you're being clever, the allusion is chosen for specific meaning. It enhances and illuminates the text. This doesn't need to be Michelangelo. By definition, it's a bad illusion. By definition, it's just, hey, I know that there's a famous sculptor slash painter slash architect named Michelangelo. And he rhymes with, oh, an exotic word like go. And so I'll do that twice. It's like intentionally bad poetry. Again, this to me is like an interesting poem because I see a poem learning not to be quite so serious about itself. And I also see like a great opportunity to to show this to students and be like, listen, It's not that taste has changed. I mean, taste has changed since 1915. But it's not like this guy doesn't know that he's being goofy. Mm. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo is goofy. Just let it be goofy. Don't try and figure out why it's deep. Because it ain't deep. (laughs) And in fact, most people read this line as saying, the point is that it's not deep. The point is that the room where these women are coming and going, whatever whatever else they're doing... (laughs) talking about Michelangelo, they're not like great critics of art. They're just like babbling just the same way that T.S. Eliot is babbling to us, just the same way that J. Alfred Prufrock is dickering around in his own head whether his babblings mean anything either. The indecisions, the visions and revisions, the the things you want to say, the things you might say, do I dare, do I dare, what am I going to say, what are they going to think of me? Jesus Christ, you might as well, you, if you wanted to write a more serious version of this, it'd be like, I am inside someone who hates me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it can be, I dare. It can be, I dare. Or then again, do I dare? Uh, the, re- the repetitions, you could see, I mean, I don't know if Baraka was actually, you know, inspired by anything Elliot d- did. Uh, and certainly, even if he were, he'd swear up and down that he wasn't. You can see in terms of the way that those repetitions are developed throughout the poem, you can see a sort of modernist structure for showing complexity without getting deep down into telling you the complexity, but to force you to imagine the complexity. But then it can also be a sort of parody of itself where I'm going to repeat this throwaway line in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo, like, and now you're thinking about how, well, all life is repetition and people say dumb shit thinking it's deep all the time. So now we don't even know, is the poem actually supposed to be deep or is it mundane? Well, that's kind of part of like living in a modern world that you don't know. 
hot pockets are meant to heat up your actual pockets. It's not because they're shaped like a pocket and they get hot. They're meant to heat up your soul. Oh, they fill the pocket in your soul. We're so stupid. No, we're all <laughs> stupid. It's great. I'm stupid. I'm just as stupid as you are, I assure you. <laughs> um, You're just a lot better at hiding it. So, no, I... Uh, I, no. <laughs> no, it's much it's much more like trying to convince people that the stupid things are actually deep. <laughs> well, that's uh, what that's what we're trying to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh what if this whole podcast is you just trolling us? I'm I promise you I'm not trolling you. <laughs> the the fucking whole span of history is trolling you waking up from the nightmare of the 20th century into the repeated nightmare of the 21st century is very much about like this horror of no content that like, like beyond my uh, collar that I pull up to my neck to, you know, show you how here, here I am. I I've worn the right clothes. I, I have this thin body and this thinning hair and i don't dare disturb the universe and, yeah, underneath this metal armor you know i am actually inside someone who hates me and i am again a skeleton who looks human but whatever <laughs> somewhere the robot archaeologists are going to dig this out from the hard drive and they're going to be like it's a picture of a hot pocket and inside the hot pocket it's static perfectly encapsulating is this the crusty crab i guess no, that Patrick. <laughs> i guess the past hundred years so so what it's just static is this the crusty crab no it's patrick no it's static no it's a hot pocket <laughs> no i'm 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 out of it I'm sorry I don't know. <laughs> it just seems meaningless to you is that basically where we're at i think of it like oh time is going so fast i'm getting so old oh no no he's writing it as a young man so it's in certain ways imagining that or maybe joking about that is it that humor doesn't carry across a hundred years i know some british humor doesn't carry over to americans there's also that weird level of him being an American desperately yeah. wanting so badly to be British. He like <laughs> completely revoked his American citizenship. All seriousness, the only meaning I get out of it is the meaning I inject into it. Yeah. Okay. Did people think that this was important because they've found whatever they wanted to find? Maybe it's just a blank canvas. Maybe like you said, phrases like the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. You can take your experiences and project whatever you want on that phrase or most other phrases in that poem, except when he starts talking, obviously, about age. And obviously about tragedy, like the whole, the whole bit about Prince Hamlet that I was looking at right there, where he's like basically saying, well, this is a new kind of tragedy. This is an everyman tragedy. But he's not an everyman. He's a bougie fuck, you know? <laughs> His tragedy is like, I've lived too comfortable a life and never did anything with it. His tragedy is perhaps that I never told someone that I loved her, or perhaps it's something more complex than that. There is a lot of uh, what we see in modernism 
I would think especially British modernism and American modernism, where the project is to think about like how small can a tragedy be? Just like this one sad person's life. It, it doesn't need to be Prince Hamlet anymore. A tragedy uh, is when I can't reach my charger. Exactly. Stuff. Exactly. One of the most enduring lines is, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. As I get older and I have thought back to what did I want to do? What did I want to say? And I look back at a poem like this, a line like, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons, which starts out when you're young sounding like a joke, eventually sounds like actually a really sad line. Like, think about all the coffee spoons that you've used, you know? Yeah. It is equally stupid and equally deep as thinking about all the times that you couldn't find a charger. You know, it is equally stupid and equally deep to thinking about, like, all the hours you've stared at a screen. Like, yeah. Just thinking about, like, tea time and, like, really British shit like that. But it's really about, like, all the time in your life that you waste doing stupid shit and thinking stupid shit. Yeah. It's also, like, the Hot Pockets, where it's, like an existentialist joke but when you think about it like wow some people actually fill that void with food well and other things you fill that void with food you fill that void with tea you fill that void with drugs or sex alcohol or hatred your robot son that had no mother (laughs) with airplanes (laughs) oh no You see something that starts out sounding like a joke, like, oh, I wish I were a crab. And then you think like, well, (laughs) maybe that's like the kind of thing that somebody says when they get to the end of their life and they're like, well, what did it even mean? I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves, blown back where the wind blows, the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Holding back with every ounce of my energy not to do like, and we drown. (laughs) Keep that version. It's a great kicker though. You two have really helped me grapple with how maybe this is a, not even an awful poem technically, but maybe it's a bad poem ideologically like maybe it's a dangerous poem well i'm glad we can be beneficial to you no i i guess i i guess i invited that (laughs) no i mean to say that obviously neither of you really has any love for this poem at all Nah. and i've spent a large portion of my life trying to figure out like why does this poem matter why should i care about this does this mean something deep and i found a few different reasons to think it mattered i do still think it's an important poem but your lack of interest in it is highlighting for me. Maybe this is just like the babblings of someone who just wants to be important and has nothing to say. I guess that I could imagine if I were older reading this when it came out, I'd have to be pretty offended, right? But there are so many things in it that I feel people do identify with. This idea that like, well, I want to say something, but I don't want to upset the the party. There's something about Prufrock where he wants to tell everyone off. He wants to say like, well, there's, there's more to life than this, but he never really can do it. And it's because he is of that world. And I guess that Elliot's like limited because he has this very like class bound 
idea of culture. In this poem, you can't really fathom the perspective of someone who's not a uh, cis white male of means. If the worst thing that you can think of is like, oh, the horror of the tea and cakes and ices, <laughs> then like maybe, maybe you're missing out on something. It is, like I said, that moment where even the subject in a privileged position also is inside someone who hates him, which it turns out is himself. Right? <laughs> the whole of capitalism hates us. Even if we're comfortable bourgeois in this pre-war era of, I'm walking around the city and going to bars and chatting with friends, uh, I get old and I realize my life was meaningless. Yeah, that kind of sucks, but also that's not nearly as bad as the suffering that everybody else in that same system had to deal with. So mm -hmm. shut up. The conclusion from 100 years later uh, of you 2 seems to be, therefore, shut your fucking face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do still think it's a great poem, though I, I do really appreciate you allowing me to learn why it also is just Stupid. completely pointless yeah. uh, and not even like uh, yeah point I think it's intentionally pointless but it's also like by definition perhaps a waste of paper <laughs> oh <laughs> um, I mean, you said what we were thinking so yeah well you know <laughs> I, I like to think that I'm learning too I'll close with a little story from ye 90s about <laughs> about this poem back on uh ye aol instant messenger oh, God. oh no which is what we used to do in high school before we had phones and texted or snapchatted with each other We'd be on the computer late at night presumably doing homework or maybe just being insomniacs online or whatever and you know you'd have your instant messenger chat going and in theory you could talk to people from all over the world but to be a little bit more pedestrian you might talk to people from your high school who maybe you were friends with but maybe not even like that close friends with because it was like well you're up and, and I'm up. you know them um, more by what they post than who they are as an actual person potentially but keep in mind that this is not even posting this is person-to-person -person chat it's more like texting or snapchat you could have like chat rooms but people didn't actually do that too much in my experience much more it was like individual people talking to each other while you're just like on the computer doing whatever else you were doing on the computer imagine like the family desktop computer and everybody yeah. else in the family is asleep and there you are the lone <laughs> teenager at a giant whirring machine <laughs> A different world, but in so many ways, also the same world. But also, again, a different world because people didn't come out when they were in high school. Like, if I'm understanding now, people tend to come out in high school. Is that correct in your experience? Yeah, so if they're, was, like, really comfortable. Yeah, I mean, that's, obviously it depends on where, you, where you're living. Yeah. In my experience as someone who, again, grew up in ye 90s, it was more common that you'd wait until you went off to college to come out. In their friend group, people would know. You'd come out to your close friends. But like in mm -hmm. terms of everybody in the school knowing, you didn't want that because mm -hmm. that could be trouble. A friend of mine, or maybe I'd call him an acquaintance of mine, was gay. And we knew it. He was, I guess, out again to like a certain type of friend group, but not generally out because nobody was generally out in our school, at least. He knew that I was studying modernism. I remember him quoting this line to me, these two lines, in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. I remember myself puzzling with him 
back and forth on the messenger what that means. And obviously it stuck with me. I mean, of all the things that have happened in my life, like I remember this, probably because it has to do with T.S. Eliot's Proof Rock, which like I said, it's not like I've been puzzling over this poem continuously since then, but on and off it comes up. I happen to teach English, so it's always like a question of, I'm teaching 150 again next spring. Do I want to teach it? Is it worth teaching? You two would seem to say no. An awful lot of effort for dude grumbling about the fact that he's going to die. Get over it. Um, <laughs> but I always remember this this moment because... Again, thinking of those different kinds of readings that we can bring to a poem, like say a trans reading of An Agony Is Now. I can think of a queer reading of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock that actually indeed does make it a love song and does make it matter in a different way. That like maybe that friend of mine had keyed in on this poem. Like I didn't know that he was into literature at all, in fact, but he knew Prufrock. And he knew it well enough to think it was important to quote it to me and to stop and talk with me about it. And I think it's because... It's that question, do I dare and do I dare? Usually people read this as like the man is trying to think of whether he wants to make this proposal to this woman or whether he wants to confess to his love for her or whether he wants to say something important at this whatever tea party. But it's so much more interesting. It's so much more deep. The stakes are so much higher if I think about it as a queer poem. If I think about it as the do I dare of my friend back in high school trying to think like, well, I have feelings for this person and can I even ask? I mean, if I'm not saying, then he's not saying and no one else is saying, it's possible that he's also gay. Do I dare say I am Lazarus come back from the dead in the living death of pretending that I'm not myself inside someone who hates me? Not like I'm the center of the tragedy, not like I'm Prince Hamlet, but like I'm just a bit part, I'm just a normal person, but like, do I dare to tell someone of my desire for them? Or do I, on the other hand, just continue to live my life and continue to grow old and continue to be repressed and continue to have all of this conversation inside of me? You know, back in those days, sometimes people would have these very, very long conversations, <laughs> unlike what we do here, where we have streets that follow like a tedious argument. Um, and sometimes, you know, maybe that was for some people about like, well, I can't really say the thing I want to say. So it may indeed be a poem that is about meaninglessness and therefore in some ways meaningless. It may also be a poem that I can think of people who have found great meaning in that, whether they were the stuffy old cishet profs or whether they were my uh, closeted gay friend who thought that in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. And, and maybe, you know, if we want to critique him, maybe there was even a note of misogyny in him reading that line, how maybe there would be anger in his mind if he would talk to another man about his desire and discover that, oh, he'd pr rather prefer these women. And that's okay to, to say that that's there too. They're like, there are a lot of things in, this, in these poems and some of them are uncomfortable um, and others are like ghosts of things that we can pick up only if we tune our radios in such a way and we don't even know if we're imagining it or not, but well, that's okay too. Maybe we learn something. I I'm like that story. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making me feel like it was worth my time. <laughs> no, I like it. Mm-hmm. I can just imagine someone firing up their I am. That's, <laughs> that's funny. Who am I going to chat with tonight? I'm just back down with Jumper. Back down with him, y'all.
Drake, Frank Fuchile, Anna Wendor, Rachel Homily. The next episode will be delayed at least into August so that I can get control of things and have time to edit it. Please follow our Twitter at PointlessScent and our Instagram at ThePointlessCentury for updates. And if you're curious what my poetry sounds like, pick up a copy of the Locust Review. Thanks for your time and your patience. Keep your ear to the ground. Keep your loved ones safe.